Chapter 1 The Prodigal's Father But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 23, King James Version. Of making many sermons on the prodigal son, there seems to have been no end. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 12. However, I was in the ministry fifteen years before I preached from any part of the parable. There may be many reasons why, as a rule, we turn away from it. It may be that the picture is too realistic. I was standing in the prison chapel at Joliet, Illinois, when a request was made for me to conduct a service for the convict. Just as I was leaving the building, the officer said to me, By the way, if you come, do not preach about any part of the prodigal. We have had twenty-four ministers here so far, and every one of them preached about the prodigal son. These poor fellows have had about as much prodigal as they can stand. It may also be that we have turned away from it, because it is such familiar ground that it has lost its charm for us. I was taking a train through the magnificent Rocky Mountain scenery some time ago, and when we had descended into the Royal Gorge, and later swung into the Grand Canyon, it seemed to me that scenery more sublime could not be found in all the world. I thought that if I had never been impressed before with the existence of God, I would have cried out to Him in the midst of those mountain peaks. I noticed that everyone in the car, with one single exception, was gazing in delight and admiration. This one woman was intently reading a book, and to my certain knowledge, she did not lift her eyes once from the printed page while we were in that wonderful scenery. After we had swung out into the great plain, I overheard her say to her friend, This is the thirteenth time I have crossed the mountains. The first time I was so impressed that I could not keep the tears from rolling down my cheeks. But now I know it so well that I frequently go through the whole range with hardly ever even glancing out the window. Sadly, that is often how we read God's Word. That which fills heaven with wonder and furnishes the angels a theme for never-ending praise, we read with indifference or fail to read at all. Yet my own confession is that until recently, I have never had the best of this story of the prodigal. I thought that the parable was to give us a vision of the younger son, and as such it would be a message to backsliders. While this is one part of the meaning, it is not by any means the best part. Then it occurred to me that the story might have been given to us so that we would take warning from the selfishness of the elder brother. However, I had built up such a dislike for this character that I never cared to consider him even for a moment. Lately, though, this has become to me one of the sweetest portions of all the New Testament because I believe the parable was written so that we would focus our eyes upon the father of the parable, and in that father we would get a glimpse of God. It may be interesting to know how this sermon was born. I was sitting in my room, 
in the Denison Hotel in Indianapolis in November of 1894. Looking into the face of my friend, Elijah P. Brown, the editor of The Ram's Horn, I had known him in the days of his unbelief and had feared him because of his bitterness. I had heard him in some of his violent outbreaks against God and the truth, and this was the first privilege I had had of any extended conversation with him since his remarkable conversion. He had been converted under Mr. Moody's preaching in his own church in Chicago, when the theme was the father of this prodigal. I had heard repeated accounts of the conversion, and so I said to him, Tell me, if you will, how you found Christ. To my amazement, he said, I think I was born again when I was eighteen years of age. This was startling to me, for a more violent infidel I had never known than this man in the days that were past. But he said, I do not mean that I was born into the kingdom of God, but rather into the understanding that my father loved me. I had always been a stranger to this thought and that was the beginning of a remarkable series of events that culminated in my conversion. Then he told me this story. A Father's Love I was a wayward boy, and did many things that caused my father much anguish of heart, because I did not know that he was my friend. We were never close. There was no communion of love between us, and the thought that I meant anything to him never entered my mind. So when I was only a boy, I took my destiny into my own hands and ran away. Just as I was coming into manhood, I got sick, and out of sheer necessity I was obliged to turn my face toward my father's house, for I had been prodigal with my earnings and had saved nothing for the time of need. There was no other friendly roof to which I could look for shelter, so I had to go back home. I was given a friendly welcome. But in a few days I repented to the bottom of my soul that I had come. My father was very poor and was himself just recovering from a long illness. Every dollar that he earned cost him the most laborious effort and continual pain. I found that there was not enough bread for everyone and no extra, but only a few crumbs for each. There was famine and lack and hardship of which I had not dreamed and the bread I took from my poor father's table almost choked me, for it seemed to have the taste of blood upon it. It was agony to stay there and be a burden upon my parents, and I could not endure it. It would be better, I thought, to go out and die in the highway rather than live by eating bread that cost so much. So after I had gained some strength, I told my father that I would have to go. He begged me to stay and said that times would surely brighten up soon. But I couldn't do it. I had to go. When he saw that I was determined not to stay, his face took on the saddest look I had ever seen him have. He took his hat and cane to walk a short distance with me. We walked on, slowly and almost silently together for perhaps a half a mile, when my father grew weary and said he would have to go back. My parting with him at that time is one of the sad scenes in my life I can never forget. As he took me by the hand, he said, with a voice trembling with emotion, I never wanted to be rich before, my boy, as I do today. God knows it almost kills me to see you leaving home because your father is so poor. Don't go, my son. Don't go. Come back with me. 
and help will surely come from somewhere. I can't bear to see you go in this way while you are still sick. You may die from lack. Come back. As long as we have a crust, there is a part of it for you. And while we have a roof over us, there is no need for you to be without a home. But when he saw that my mind was fixed and that nothing he could say would convince me to change my mind, he said, Oh, how sadly. Goodbye. Goodbye. God bless you. If we never meet in this life again, I hope we will meet in heaven. As he softly and reluctantly let go of my hand, he turned and started to go home. But he only took a step or two, and then stopped and spoke my name. As he did so, I turned, and as my father also turned toward me, I saw a tear leave his eye and wind down his cheek. It was the first tear I had ever seen my father shed for me. As he stepped forward, he put his hand into his pocket and took out something. The next moment, he pressed a fifty-cent piece into my hand and then turned, without another word, and walked away. I watched him as far as I could see him, with something in my heart that had never been there before. And then I went on my way happier than I had ever been in all my life, for now I knew that my father loved me. And that moment, I also knew that I loved him. When he gave me that fifty-cent piece, I knew what it meant. I knew that it was every cent he had on earth, and I knew what great pain and labor it had cost. It was all that he could do for me, and in that gift I saw my father's heart. I knew that he would have given me a fortune just as gladly if it had been his to give, and as I realized this, I repented that I had ever caused him a single anxious thought. I would have given anything just then to have blotted out the past. I resolved that from that day forward, I would be a different son to him, and thank God I was. I went out into the cold and snow that morning, better and stronger and braver than I had ever been before, because I knew at last that my father loved me. It was cold and cheerless outside, but warm and bright within. All day long something seemed to be singing in my heart, Father loves me. Father loves me. All my life I had been hungering for just such a moment as this. It was a great turning point in my life. From that hour, my father was first in all my thoughts and all my plans. I determined that day that I would live for him, that I would live to help him in the hard battle he had to fight with the world. My first aim in life would be to make life easier for him, and from that hour, I never consciously caused him any more anguish. One of the things for which I am most grateful to God today is that he put it in my power to place father and mother in their own home and relieve them from all worldly concerns during the last years of their lives. The change in my life as a son was caused by the change in my belief in regard to my father. There was no change in him. He had always loved me just as much as he did on the morning when I discovered the state of his heart, but I had not believed that he did, and so I had behaved accordingly. When my belief changed, my conduct changed. 
I suppose that my father had always wanted me to know that he loved me, and had no doubt been trying in hundreds of ways to make the fact known to me, just as God has always been trying to make known his love to sinful man. But until the moment came when he could make the sacrifice for me, there was no way under heaven by which he could show me his heart. My extremity was his opportunity. And so when I heard Mr. Moody preach his wonderful sermon on the Father in this story, I said to myself, If God is like that, I want to know him. This, in brief, was the story of his conversion. Did it ever occur to you that in the pictures of the fathers of the Bible, you were always given a vision of one part of the nature of God? Jacob crying out, You have deprived me of my sons. Joseph is gone, and Simeon is gone, and now you would take Benjamin. Genesis chapter 42, verse 36, is an illustration of God crying out in his great tenderness over the lost. David exclaiming, My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33, is just a hint as to the way God feels over his own lost ones for whom his son has really died. Yet better than any picture of a father as the revelation of God is the life of the Son of God from whose lips we have heard these words, The one who has seen me has seen the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. But putting all these things together and reading the story of the prodigal in the light of them, our hearts burn within us as we see God. 1. But when he was yet a great way off. These words must have a wonderful meaning, for the measurement is from God's standpoint. It would be a terrible thing to be a great way off according to man's perception, but when it is the computation of one who is infinite, we are startled yet our amazement instantly gives way to adoration. For we are told that even if we are so great a distance from him, we are not to be discouraged. In Acts chapter 2 verse 39 we read that the promise is unto all who are far away, and we are told that you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13, and that Jesus Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away, as well as to those who were near. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 17. It is never any question with God as to how deeply one has sinned. It is a remarkable thing that throughout the whole Bible, He has always chosen the most conspicuous sins and the most flagrant sinners that He might demonstrate to us His willingness to forgive. God requires only three things if we want to know Him in this way. First, there must be a willing mind. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19 we read, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best of the land. In another place we read, If the willingness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 12. In still another place we are told, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching. John chapter 7 verse 17. God Himself, infinite though He may be, 
will not save us against our wills. Second, there must be a desire to know the truth so that we may do it. Mere knowledge of the truth may be our condemnation, and it is the saddest thing in the world that so many people know the truth and yet are unwilling to do it. It will be a dreadful judgment that must finally fall upon the majority of people because all their lives they lived under the shadow of the church and heard the preaching of the word, all of which condemns them. The third requirement is an honest confession of one's intentions. God never gives anyone more light than he uses, but if there is in the heart a single desire, no matter how weak, to know him, and that desire is confessed before men and unto God, he enlarges our vision and sheds upon us more abundant light, and it is always by the way of confession that we enter into the fullness of joy. 2. His Father Saw Him Mr. Moody said that that father was looking through the telescope of his love. I have always felt that he was looking through his tears. It is said that when astronomers want to increase the scope of their vision, they add to the number of lenses, and sometimes our falling tears are like the lenses in the telescope. They bring objects far removed, near unto us. What a comfort it is to know that the great Father of us all looks after us with a compassion that is infinite and with a sympathy that is beyond understanding. The vision of the father of the prodigal was limited, but God's eye sweeps through all space, and he sees us wherever we are. He can even behold our thoughts. When you bowed your head and said, I should come, and partly lifted your hand as an expression of your intention, or when you started to rise in order to make public your confession, he saw you and was ready to run to meet you. This is all that he requires on your part. He is ready to do all the rest. It is said that in one of the Norfield conferences, Dr. Rainsford of England once told the story of an old friend of his, a German professor who was an agnostic. As you know, the creed of the agnostic is simply, I do not know. This old professor came to visit Dr. Rainsford and went with him to all the services of his church. When the day was ended, the rector said to him, Professor, tell me what you think of it all. His answer was, It is beautiful, but that is all I can say. Then Dr. Rainsford asked him some more questions. Do you not think that it is possible that there may be a God? The old professor said. Yes, it is possible. Then do you not think that it is probable that God has made a revelation of himself to his creatures? His friend answered, Yes, that is probable. Well, do you not think that he would make that revelation plain if we were to ask him? The professor answered, I should think he would be obligated to. Well, said Dr. Rainsford, have you ever asked him? The old man answered, No. For my sake. Dr. Rainsford said, Will you ask him now? They fell upon their knees in the study, and the old minister said, Lord God, reveal yourself to my dear friend. After his prayer was ended, he said, Now, professor, you pray. The old professor lifted his eyes and said, O oh God, and then, as if he felt he had gone too far, 
he changed his petition and said, O God, if there is a God, show me the light and I will... Just as he was saying, and I will walk in it, he suddenly sprang to his feet with his face radiant and shouted, Why, I see it, I see it, and it is glorious. His agnosticism took wings and departed from him. Faith filled his heart and joy thrilled in his soul. From that time to this, he has been a good disciple of Jesus Christ. In the light of all this, I make the plea, only encourage your smallest desire to know him, and you will come to know him whom to know is life eternal. 3. He had compassion and ran. I never knew until recently what that word compassion meant. I know now that it indicates one's suffering with another. It is this that makes the story of a man's transgression so sad. Other hearts are made to ache and almost break. Other eyes are filled with tears. Other lives are made desolate. I can see this old father going up to the lookout from his home, gazing off in the direction in which his boy had left, and then coming down the steps again and crying out like David of old, Oh, my son, my son, if only I had died instead of you. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 33. He had compassion. We had in our city a young man, who was more than ordinarily prosperous in his business, and his prosperity seemed to be the cause of his downfall. It became so noticeable that his partners called him into their office to say that he must either mend his ways or dispose of his interests in the concern. His promises were good, and all went well for a little while. Then, when the failure was worse than ever, they insisted that he should dispose of his interests to them. He gave up a great sum of money and began to sink rapidly. He had gone from bad to worse, until not long ago they found him floating in the river, for he had taken his own life. The story is sad in the extreme, but the saddest portion of it is found in the fact that there is an old man today going about the streets of the city mourning for his son. He scarcely lifts his eyes from the ground as he walks. Sometimes you see him with tears rolling down his cheeks. He loves his son. It is a fact that no one ever sins, breaking even the least of God's commandments, that the heart of the great and loving Father does not yearn over that person and long for his return. 4. What did he do? We all know this story so thoroughly well that it would seem almost unnecessary to emphasize things the father did when the meeting between himself and his son occurred. But for the sake of the story, let me review some things anyway. First, we read that the father kissed him, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. You will notice that he did not wait until the boy's garments had been changed or the signs of his wanderings were removed. There would have been no grace in this. The son was clothed in all his rags, but the father threw his arms around him, drew him close to his heart, and gave him the kiss that was the sign of complete reconciliation. This is what Jesus Christ waits to give to every wandering soul. The old hymn by Charles Wesley says, 
My God is reconciled, and this is the teaching of the Scriptures. It is not necessary for us to work ourselves up into a fever of excitement, nor weep and wail in the depths of our despair, but it is only necessary for us to receive what God offers us in Jesus Christ. The first step in the Christian life is an acceptance of that which comes from above. There was a young man in Philadelphia who belonged to one of the so-called better families who by his wayward actions disgraced his father and finally broke his heart. After a little while, he left his home, went to Baltimore, went from there to Washington, and after months of wandering determined to return home. He was ashamed to meet the members of his family, but he knew that if he made a peculiar sound at the door at the midnight hour, there was someone who would hear and understand. When he stood before that door, it was swung open, and without a word of reproach, his mother welcomed him. The next morning he did not come down from his room, and the second morning he was ashamed to come down. But the third morning, as he descended the stairway, his brother, a physician, met him and said, Edward, mother is dying. She had been suddenly stricken down and was anxious to see him. He made his way into her room. He knelt beside her bed and sobbed out, Oh, mother, please forgive me. With her last departing strength, she drew close to him, placed her lips close to his ear, and said, My dear boy, I would have forgiven you long ago if you had only accepted it. This is a picture of God, with a love that is infinite, and with compassion beyond description, He waits to save everyone who will simply just receive His gift of life. Second, I have always imagined that when the father started out from the house running to meet his son, that the servants must have noticed him, and they possibly ran after him. When the father saw the condition of the son, I can hear him as he turned to the approaching servants to say, Run and bring the best robe and put it on him. It is a beautiful thing to me to know that when they brought the robe, the father wrapped it around him, thus covering over all the signs of his wanderings. This is what God does for me and for you. The moment we believe, the robe of Christ's righteousness is placed around us, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and God looks upon us as being without spot or blemish. For we are at once accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. I remember that when Jonathan was dead and David wanted to do something for someone who belonged to him, the only one he could find upon whom he might lavish his affection was poor, little, lame Mephibosheth. He was lame on both his feet. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. You will remember, his nurse had dropped him as she was fleeing away from the enemy. But when David found him, he placed him at the king's table, and in such a position that his lameness was hidden. If you had been on the opposite side from him, you never would have known that he had a mark of deformity about him. This is what God does for every poor wandering lost one who comes to him. I, I alone, am the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 25. Third, 
he put the ring on his hand. The ring is always the emblem for completeness. This was a beautiful illustration of the fact that the father's love was perfect and that this love had not been affected by the wanderings of the boy. This is certainly true of God, and I know no better symbol to give a thought of his love than that of the ring. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. Fourth, he put shoes on his feet. I can see the poor boy as he hobbles on to meet his father, his feet bleeding at every step, for the shoes were worn, and he walked with difficulty. However, when he was provided with shoes from the king's house, I can see him taking the hand of his old father and running back to his home. One of the commonest excuses presented by people for not surrendering to Christ is the fear that they may not hold out. But to me it is comforting to know that the moment we are saved, he puts shoes on our feet and we are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15. Mr. Sankey tells the story of his little boy who was with him in Scotland, and for the first time he was wearing what in that country is known as a topcoat. They were walking out one cold day, and the way was slippery. The little fellow's hands were deep down in his pockets. His father said to him, My son, you had better let me take your hand. But he said, You can never persuade a boy with a new topcoat to take his hands out of his pockets. They reached a slippery place and the boy had a hard fall. Then his pride began to depart, and he said, I will hold on to your hand. He reached up and clasped his father's hand the best he could. When a second slippery place was reached, the clasp was broken, and the second fall was harder than the first. Then all his pride was gone. He raised his little hand and said, You may take it now. Ira Sankey said, I clasped it round about with my great hand, and we continued our walk. When we reached the slippery places, the little feet would start to go, and I would hold him up. This is a picture for the Christian. I am saved not so much because I have hold of God, as because God has hold of me. He not only gives me shoes with which I may walk and that never wear out, but Christ holds my hand in His and I will never perish, neither will anyone take me out of his hand. John chapter 10 verse 28. His Father is greater, and no one will ever take me out of his Father's hand. And so between the hand of God and the hand of Christ, I am secure. 5. And they killed for him the fatted calf. I can see the old father, as he runs from home to home, exclaiming, Come in and rejoice with me, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Luke chapter 15 verse 24. And they begin to be merry. One can only have the fatted calf killed for him once. But one of the delightful things about the Christian life is that we may repeatedly sit down to enjoy the feast for others. It is thrilling to know that we never have a time of feasting here when they do not have a time of rejoicing in heaven. For there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Luke chapter 15 verse 10. At the close of a meeting in Joliet, Illinois, I sat down beside an honored evangelist, 
H. W. Brown, and among other things in his career, he told me the following story. A number of years earlier, he had a remarkable work of grace in the lake region of Wisconsin in the town of Oconomowoc. After his work of grace, he returned one day for a little visit, and as he stepped off the car, he saw at the station an old man named James Stewart. Knowing him well, he asked him why he was there. The old man replied that his boy had gone away from home and had said to him, Father, I will return some day, but I do not know when. Mr. Stewart said, I am waiting for him to come back. As strange as it may seem, thirteen years later Mr. Brown revisited that old town, and the first man he saw when getting off the car was this old father. He had forgotten his story, but he met him saying, Mr. Brown, he hasn't come yet, but he will come, and I am waiting. Just then, said my friend, I lifted up my eyes and saw someone walking down the aisle of the car, and I said to myself that if I was not sure that the boy was dead, I would say that was the son. But other eyes had seen him too, and with an excited step the old father sprang to the steps of the car, and when the boy reached the platform, in less time than I can tell it, he was in his father's arms. The old father sobbed out, Oh, my son, thank God you've come. You've come. Then turning to my friend, he said, Mr. Brown, I would have waited until I died. In the same way, God waits and looks and yearns and loves. Jesus Christ pleads with us to look unto him and be saved and in his name I plead with you to come. Thy sins I bore on Calvary's tree, the stripes thy due were laid on me, that peace and pardon might be free, O weary sinner, come. Go leave thy burden at the cross, count all thy gains but empty dross, my grace repays all earthly loss, O needy sinner, come.